This is Archive Atlanta, episode 217, Prohibition Replay. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So I was gonna have an episode, I really thought I could do it. I started a new job on Monday. And, you know, all new jobs, it's always crazy that first week. And it's an amazing job. I love it. I'm so happy. And, you know, they're not overloading me. It's just that I have spent every second of the day with a person, having lunch with people. This job involves a lot of driving, so I've been in the car. And on top of that, it's my daughter's birthday this weekend. I have to throw a kid's birthday party. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. I've just been coming home and just laying on the couch. And so there is no way I was going to have this episode ready. And so I decided to, you know, repeat an episode from the past. And I went way back for this one. So this is from December of 2018. And usually old episodes don't really hold up, but this one wasn't bad. I mean, there's a couple of dated references. I think I said Elliott Street was still open. It's since closed. Um, I hadn't done a race massacre episode. Obviously that's already happened. But in general, Again, all kind of holds up, still really interesting information. And I'm actually working on doing a moonshine bootlegging NASCAR episode in the future with a special guest. So I want everyone to listen to this. If you have not been back, it's one of the earliest episodes and I will be back next week with a new episode. I didn't purposely set out to release my Prohibition episode just over a week after National Repeal Day, but I do find it really interesting coincidence because I remember seeing all of the Atlanta restaurants, bars, things like that posting on social media like, yay, National Repeal Day, we have specials, celebrations. I find that all a little funny now because finishing this research taught me that it took Atlanta and Georgia a whole lot longer to actually turn, quote, wet after 1933 when repeal is actually celebrated. I've wanted to do this episode for a long time and I've almost released it a few weeks in a row, but there's so much information and I wanted to get as much as I could. There are probably a thousand books on the subject. I mean, there are two or three books just on Atlanta alone. The story of Prohibition has so many moving parts, but today I want to give you some of the highlights, recommend some of these books that help me get it together. Um, One is called Prohibition in Atlanta, and the other one is Liquor in the Land of the Lost Cause. They actually have longer names than that, but I'm shortening them. I'm putting links to both of those in the show notes, Um, and if these topics sparks an interest for you guys, you can read more about it later. And I'm always talking about physical places to tie into a story. And this one doesn't have very many, which I didn't really expect. There is actually a shortage of records or photos of Atlanta alcohol-related places that I learned. Um, But I will make sure to let you know of any place with a Prohibition connection that is still around for you to see. One of my very favorite history podcasts is called Backstory. uh, And they recently did a great overview episode about Prohibition. It even mentions Atlanta very briefly. I'm also going to put a link for that in the show notes if you guys want to listen, but I'm going to give you kind of a brief overview of the big story. America's connection with alcohol starts pretty much from our inception, and mainly because water at that time was not very safe to drink, and we weren't breeding our cows for drinkable milk. So the only thing to drink was alcohol, and ale was a very normal part of everyday life. 
When the Revolutionary War comes about, George Washington contracts for rum to be provided year-round for his troops. Um, If you think about it, you need a little extra help when you're about to go into battle. It would be the period after that war that we see America's relationship with alcohol and social drinking patterns change. And for the first time in history, you get that solo binge drinker situation, and many people were starting to worry about these issues and how it was affecting society. When it comes to the state of Georgia, our history with alcohol and its prohibition actually go way, way back. In 1735, when Georgia was still just a colony, British leaders outlawed rum and brandy. Um, They saw that that was kind of a big issue with people, with men mostly, drinking too much. That ban would last for seven years before it was lifted. Nationally, when we think of prohibition, we tend to associate it with the North and the Puritans and etc. etc. I know that I certainly did, but although the South's relationship with prohibiting alcohol went a little differently, it was definitely a strong player. As the first book I read explained, our Southern movement was really tied in with the evangelical movement that's found south of the Mason-Dixon line. Adele Sherwood was a Baptist minister that in 1828 would start the state of Georgia's first temperance society. By 1829, there was a statewide convention happening. As we reach the 1840s, support kind of wanes a little bit. And then by the time you reach the start of the Civil War in 1860, everyone was like, yeah, whatever. War does that to places, societies, and people. Um, There was really a need to rally the men up as they went into battle. And there was also a mesidinal aspect. So many wounded soldiers were given hard alcohol before being operated on especially because that was happening like out in a field in the middle of nowhere. And moonshiners, who um, talk about a little later, would smuggle alcohol into Atlanta, claiming that they were headed for Civil War hospitals, but very little would actually make it there. Although temperance takes a backseat during the war, afterward it begins to pick up steam again, and this time women would join the fight. After the war, the South lay in ruins, and people are in despair. The economy is crushed, alcohol production increases, basically people are drinking their woes away. There's a lot of, what did we do wrong? Why did we lose? Many evangelicals and generally religious people thought that God was punishing them for slavery or these other evils, and some of these other evils they thought were drinking. The reason that women start to get involved is there's a lot of this, like the men are, again, I always mention this, but the men are mostly dead. Um, And then you have men coming back with drinking problems. And so the women really step in and go, okay, how are we going to take care of our men? You know, what are we going to do? By the 1880s, prohibition is popular once again. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, which is shortened to WCTU, had started in Ohio about six years before the Georgia branch. But Atlanta women wasted no time. They met in the basement of Trinity Methodist. Now, before you get too excited, this is not the current Trinity Methodist you can still see downtown. This was a church building before that one, which was on the corner of Whitehall and Peters and was torn down in 1911. Mary Latimer McClendon, who is the sister of Rebecca Latimer Felton, who was the first woman to serve in the U.S. Senate, but I'm getting off track here. Uh, Mary, by the 1880s, she had founded the most active chapter of the WCTU in Georgia. She was a temperance leader and a suffragette, 
both being really important to her. And I love that she never seemed to give one up for the other. She was actually mad at the Methodist organization. She was a devout Methodist, but they stopped letting the WCTU meet in their churches because the women were also demanding the right to vote. Maine was the first state to pass statewide prohibition in 1851, which is why these early prohibition laws were usually called Maine laws. But most states were using something called local option to go dry. And that's what worked for Atlanta. In 1885, Fulton County is about to vote on the local choice to go dry or stay wet. Funny enough, this excluded wine. (laughs) So wine is still okay, no matter what. And this is a really interesting time in Atlanta because both white and black temperance activists work really closely together. African Americans in the city had gotten the right to vote during Reconstruction, and white voters saw the potential in having black votes to pass this local option bill. During slavery, liquor licenses excluded sales to slaves, and slave masters never allowed their property to drink. So for a group of men that think they're finally equal, drinking was very much a symbol of full citizenship. So this is a dynamic issue. Um, There's a few papers I found online about it, prohibition and temperance in the black community. I just kind of want you guys to understand that it's very nuanced. Middle class and upper middle class African Americans tended to vote dry or pro-prohibition. They thought the cause was noble. It would bring good to the community. Lower income black residents of Atlanta were usually in the service industry and their jobs were dependent on people who were drinking, frequenting restaurants or saloons, and they feared what prohibition is going to do to their livelihood. This time before the vote was a frenzy. Both sides are campaigning, trying to lure the undecideds to their side. There's a huge influx in people registering to vote, which is kind of fun to read because it makes me think of, you know, what just happened in our governor race. We had so many more people registered than the last time. 400 anti-prohibition black citizens met inside Thurman Hall, which is part of Morehouse College, in order to discuss how this was going to affect them. There were weeks of rallies, tent revivals, speakers coming into the city trying to persuade people. White prohibitionists invited Bishop Gaines from Big Bethel to their uh, second meeting with this kind of mutual assumption that he was leading the black vote to go dry. The votes were cast, and in 1885, Fulton County votes 229 to 219 to go dry. It was the largest county to ever pass prohibition by popular vote. Now, the comical piece to this is that the permits did not expire until June of 1886. So it just didn't make sense to put this law into action on January 1st. They just waited till July 1st. So I want you to take a minute and imagine you're living in Atlanta. And it's June 30th, 1886. And tomorrow, you are no longer allowed to buy alcohol or beer. What do you think is happening? Yep, there is a buying frenzy. People are stocking up. Bars are having like specials and parties trying to use up all their stock. And I don't know about you, but if I had a time machine, I'd really like to go back to this exact day in history. Remember, the law still allows wine. So there are a lot of wine rooms that pop up around the city. Um, I think the Kimball House had a wine room. And there's also a lot of loopholes. They didn't exactly think this through. Um, it's also very difficult when... A one county is going dry in a sea of other counties that aren't. Anyone that knows the basics of prohibition, I think we can safely say that the first thing we always think about is speakeasies. We even have a bar in Atlanta called Speakeasy. 
But funny enough, that wasn't the term used here in Atlanta. We would call them blind tigers. And the term is a bit of a mystery. It first appeared in print in 1884, but it usually was a term for a person's house where illegal alcohol was sold. The first recorded blind tiger-related arrest happened in 1886 at a place on Broad Street. And there's even an arrest record of a 16-year-old African-American girl named Lucy McCall because she was selling liquor out of her parents' house. Another way around the ban, and this is one of my favorites, it was called the Jugs Train. What you would do is order alcohol from a wet county, and it would arrive via train. That simple. There was a large sub-industry of people who would order it for you, pick it up from the station, um, but people would sometimes just wait at the station waiting for the alcohol to come in. There was also alcohol commonly used in medicines, and I can't remember which book it was, but it talks about how high society temperance women of the time would commonly take patent medicine for nerves or headaches, and so here they are, they're, you know, prohibitionist, temperance leaders, and then they'd be shocked to find out that some of this medicine contained more than 20% alcohol. This leads us to the story of John Pemberton a pharmacist at Jacob's Pharmacy in downtown Atlanta, he had created a very popular drink in 1884 called French wine coca. It worked because wine is still legal, and it turns out so is cocaine at that time in history. So even though the drink is technically legal, there was a fear that having wine in the name would draw suspicion from the law, and he just didn't want to get like people involved and tell him he can't sell his drink. So the best plan was to create a, quote, temperance-safe drink. And that's what he does in 1886 with his new product that he calls Coca-Cola. And yes, Coca-Cola had cocaine until 1903 when they started replacing it with caffeine. If you ever go to the world of Coke, it's not my favorite place in Atlanta, but I was dragged there unwillingly the other day. Um, but they do ask you this trivia question in the very beginning. So now you guys know the answer. It was 1886. Fulton County's local option was set to expire every two years and be re-voted on. So the next election was set for 1887, and the campaigns began to heat up once again. This time, though, Fulton County went wet. And when the white prohibitionists discovered that the black vote really helped secure the wet victory, these previous allies sort of turned on each other. There was a lot of interesting changes. Atlanta, or Fulton County, would stay wet for almost two decades, while most of Georgia's other counties would turn dry one by one. By 1905, 125 out of 145 counties had banned alcohol. Things in Atlanta would change after the 1906 race riot. I know that I think I have promised you each episode that I'm going to do one on the race riot soon, but it's a big, important topic, and I want to get it right. But to give you a very short summary, in September of 1906, well over 5,000 white men spent four days in inflicting violence, killing, damaging property, and terrorizing the African-American people and businesses of the city of Atlanta. It started for several reasons, but one of the main ones was a concern over African-American men drinking. Like I said earlier, after the loss of the dry vote in 1887, white prohibitionists changed their tune about their black comrades. And in general, this is the time in history where we start to see the narrative of the dim-witted Sambo caricature. Before the Civil War, drunkenness is a white male issue. It was socially unacceptable for women to drink, and we've already mentioned that slaves are not drinking. So all of a sudden, the world is a different place for white Southerners. And this race riot was a huge embarrassment for Atlanta. 
they explained it away by blaming it on alcohol. Black men were spending too much time down on the brothels and saloons of Decatur Street. They believed that when you gave too much alcohol to a black man, he simply could not control his impulses and he would seek to sexually assault women. Weeks before the riot, newspapers printed story after story of black men raping young white women. Of course, almost none of these were true, which makes me a little depressed to realize that we are still dealing with fake news more than a century later. But I digress. Um, after the riot, the first order of business is prohibition. It basically just rallied the whole city together. And I, I can't remember if it was a guy running for mayor or governor, but that was like his campaign promise was prohibition. There were a few other incidents occurring in Atlanta to change the tie to the dry side. The Anti-Saloon League forms the same year as the riot. Uh, mayor James Woodward, who had won mayor in 1899, again in 1904, in 1908, he wins a Democratic primary, so he's kind of a shoo-in to win the mayor's seat, except that he was arrested for public intoxication less than a month before the election. He winds up losing, but it just kind of adds more fuel to the prohibitionists. That same year, 1908, the entire state of Georgia passes prohibition, becoming the first southern state to do so. Booker T. Washington applauds the effects of prohibition on crime. He states that in January of 1907... 553 people appeared in court for drunkenness, but in January of 1908, only 65. So a lot of people think this is a great thing. But the reality is even statewide prohibition didn't stop people from drinking. The best story is that in that same year, they found a huge blind tiger discovered inside the state capitol building. By 1910, you have these things called locker clubs that would become popular among the white elite. And they're lockers where you safely store your liquor and drink without penalty. Capital City had a big locker club, and there was a huge popular one on the top floor of the Candler Building. In 1916, the Elliott Street Pub, which at that time was a blacksmith shop with a carriage house, was raided by the feds, and they found 100 gallons of whiskey and a still. I love that this building's now a bar, so you can go down there right now and have a drink. It's in Castleberry Hill, really close to the new football stadium. If you're keeping track, we have yet to get to national prohibition as we all kind of know it from school. World War I would really further this cause and give the nation something to rally behind, kind of like a reason to go dry. Finally, in 1920, the Volstead Act passes as well as the 18th Amendment. National prohibition definitely tightened things up, but the presence of Georgia moonshine would be too much for the federal government to be able to get a handle on. And if you want to fall into a rabbit hole, just Google moonshine wars. Amazing stories of armed agents going into the Appalachian Mountains, basically having shootouts with these moonshiners. Moonshine was really corn whiskey, um, and it was usually called white lightning. You could find white lightning in almost every black Atlanta neighborhood, but it was also plentiful in Cabbage Town, as those mill workers loved having their moonshine after working long hours in the factory. There were a few moonshine stills within the city limits. I read about one that was found downtown on Garnett Street. Now that space is a parking deck. Does not get more Atlanta than that. But the majority of moonshine consumed here was coming from Dawsonville. Just 60 miles away, there was money to be made by the person that could get the goods down here fast. Cars become popular in 1910. By the 1920s, they're abundant and accessible. 
the drivers bringing moonshine down were called trippers, and they would modify their cars to either go faster, hide alcohol in the fender or the wheel well. I'm really glancing over the details of this history, but I recommend reading more about it if it's interesting to you. Essentially, these early day trippers created the sport of stock car racing, and stock car racing turned into what we now call NASCAR. And actually, a guy with the last name of France, who is a tripper from Atlanta, started NASCAR, and Red Voigt, who is a very famous Atlanta mechanic, was the one who named it that. We all know how the National Prohibition story ends. Repeal Day is celebrated as December 5th, 1933, but that was not an immediate thing here. There was very much customs and social norms that overrode the repeal, as well as many rural cities and town continuing to stay dry, even as Atlanta would finally turn back to wet in 1938. I find it fascinating that there's still that pattern in the rural South. There are still dry counties all over the South to this day. A little bonus moonshine story for you guys to end this episode. And I found this while doing this research. And even though it's a little further in history, I just thought it was crazy. Even long after the ability to drink, moonshine has always maintained its popularity. And that's because there's no limit. Essentially, you can make it as strong as you want since the distiller has control. In 1951, that would turn deadly. A white Gainesville bootlegger named John Fat Hardy supplied a large order to a black nightclub for the weekend. What no one knew was that he cut corners and used cheap ingredients and ended up replacing the ethanol with methanol. Soon, the emergency room at Grady Hospital was packed. 38 African-American men and women were dead, many others were blinded or paralyzed, and I think it was over 400 people total were affected. In the aftermath, there were blues and gospel songs written about this incident, and Life magazine even wrote an article about it. Fat Hardy was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, and kind of the fun story everyone likes to tell is that the reason he did not get sentenced to death is because he was too fat to fit in the electric chair. So there you have it, the short story of Prohibition in Atlanta. I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. I really enjoy creating it for you all. Thanks for sharing it with others and for all the kind words I've gotten from listeners. If you have requests for a show, always feel free to let me know. I have a long, long list, but I love adding things to it. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you guys next week.